Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Hi, I'm Dust Smith, and welcome to The Signal Line. Today's podcast is a Friday night remote viewing chat with guest Bill Ray, hosted by Russell Pickering on January 29th, 2021. This comes in two parts, so make sure you get both the parts. As part of our ongoing Friday night community remote viewing chats, this evening was arranged and presented by Russell Pickering. The RV community was invited to interview and ask questions of Bill Ray, one of the Stargate remote viewers. Other famed Stargate remote viewers attended Paul H. Smith, Lynn Buchanan and Tom McNair. Project Stargate is the collective name for the advanced functioning and remote viewing experiments and programs that were undertaken for over 20 years. This was to create a trainable, repeatable, operational and if at all possible accurate method of psychic spying and information gathering for the United States military and intelligence agencies. And this included the CIA, NSA and DIA. This talk is a, a rather long talk, so it's in two parts. Make sure you get both. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. I'm Russell, and welcome to Direct Perception. The video you're about to watch today is a special edition of Daz Smith's Friday Zoom chat. Our special guest, Bill Ray, an Ingle Swan trained remote viewer and member of the military unit that eventually became known as Stargate, was joined by two of his own special guests, Tom McNear and Paul H. Smith. Also, Ingo Swan trained remote viewers. To say that this was a unique event is an understatement. To have three of the five original Ingo Swan trained remote viewers in one place answering live questions from our audience was truly a pleasure. Enjoy the show and thank you. Okay, hello everybody and welcome to Daz's Friday Zoom chat. He is here off-duty to relax and enjoy the conversation. Today, we are featuring a special guest, Bill Ray. I am going to read Bill's bio to you. William G. Ray, Major, U.S. Army, retired, prefers to be called Bill, a veteran of five wartime tours in Iraq, Kuwait, and Afghanistan. Bill Ray is a retired Army Major and Department of Defense civilian with more than 50 years of combined federal government service as an intelligence and counterintelligence officer, 20 of which were in Europe. He is one of five Stargate military remote remote viewing program viewers trained by Hal Putoff and Ingo Swan, the creators of remote viewing. Bill spent over three and a half years as a remote viewer with the remote viewing unit at Fort George G. Meade. For 18 months of that time, he led the unit as its commander. From 1985 to 1986, he facilitated the complex and challenging transfer of the Stargate program from the Army Intelligence and Security Command to the Defense Intelligence Agency. He has been involved with remote viewing since the beginning of 1984. 
with hundreds of operational remote viewing sessions to his credit, Bill also taught controlled remote viewing, CRV, privately for several years while stationed in Europe, and again since returning to the United States. Since 2002, he has served as an adjunct faculty member and instructor in remote viewing training for remote viewing instructional services when his official duties permitted. He has been the engaging and entertaining master of ceremonies for several of the annual remote viewing conferences sponsored by the International Remote Viewing Association. His 2010 remote viewing conference presentation on the fundamentals of monitoring remote viewing is a classic work in the field. Bill has a bachelor's degree in history from the State University of New York and a master's degree in international relations from the University of Southern California. Married to Sandra Ray for 53 years, they have six children, four boys and two girls. Two of Bill's sons, Rob and Sean, are also retired military. He currently resides in Wisconsin where he helps his adult children in their restaurant business and fills his primary role as a proud grandfather. Bill, welcome. Thank you, Russell. Now, Bill also has two of his own specially invited guests. Take it away and introduce your guest, Bill. Well, putting the pressure on, I think uh, you mentioned there were five of the original remote viewers trained by Engel and Hell, and we have three of them here today. Uh, wow. Tom McNair, uh, Retired Lieutenant Colonel U.S. Army, the only the only one who went through uh, all six stages with Engel. Uh, probably not a known fact, but uh, after leaving the project, Tom and I served together in two different occasions. Uh, well, I was uh, the commander of Company A, five twenty seventh up in the, the Benelux. Tom was down doing uh, CI staff work in Munich. Got together a couple times, and then. I told him Almeida was in Holland, so Tom came up and uh, worked for Allied Forces Central Europe and NATO assignment. Well, I was, after I retired, I came back and also worked for NATO. So Tom and I have been together at least three tours. Paul, uh, what can I say about Paul? Everybody knows Paul. <laughs> uh, a good friend, uh, colleague, uh, I first met Paul in Augsburg, Germany, when he was a uh, visiting one of the, one of the soldiers who was working for me at the time, Joe Evans, um, we known as Little Joe. He and he and Paul had been together at Fort Campbell with the 101st Airborne Division, and uh, that's the first time I met him. Uh, the second time was. Uh, January 3rd, 1984, when I pulled up to the project house and we all piled out and there was Paul again. So these are two of the experts in the field. I'm uh, anytime you two want to jump in with something, uh, please uh, don't hesitate. So I just uh, want to say one thing, Bill. Please, Paul. I have a very fond memory of that second meeting when you pulled up next to Skip Outwater's place. And you were in this little uh, Subaru Outback, I think, right? And Bill gets out and Sandy gets out. And then an unending stream of kids got out. I don't know where they put them all in that car. But uh, I was very impressed at your guys' ability to get everybody into that compact space. And, of course, history was made from that point on. So, 
Thank you, Paul. My daughter Shannon is here. Uh, I'm sitting in my son's seat, Billy, and Sandy is here, my wife. So uh, I'm going to have to uh, keep it clean during this. Well, I'm really <laughs> glad that she's not sitting next to you, Bill, because then we can see how ugly you really are. She would, <laughs> she would be a great contrast. <laughs> Paul, you're a silver-tongued devil. Some things never change. <laughs> Back to you, Russell. Okay. We had uh, a couple of questions pre-submitted. I'm going to go ahead and start with those. Uh, a member of our remote viewing community, Grin Spicket, was unable to attend today. His question is, Bill, you had a remarkably long military career beyond remote viewing. To what extent did you find your remote viewing experience useful while on unrelated assignments? Uh, very good question. Uh, I think the, the one thing that being a remote viewer will do for you is you learn to trust your subconscious, uh, your instincts and your feelings. As a counterintelligence officer working in, in, in Europe, uh, in CONUS, continental United States, and then five tours in the Mideast, uh, that, that feeling was there that there's something wrong here, there's something going to happen, uh, we need to look at this closer, there is something wrong about the person who just came in with this information, all those kind of things. It makes you more intuitive. Uh, I've used it a few times to, yeah, I better, yeah. it makes you more intuitive and I'll leave it at that. Okay, good, thank you. So, David Powell, uh, who wasn't sure if he would make it here or make it here on time, he has. I will go ahead and bring his question. David, first of all, says thank you for your service. And I'd like to point out that the chat is just full of people also thanking you for your service. So David's question is, when doing an ERV session, were you given a target number like in CRV or a coordinate? What did you focus on? while settling into a hypnagogic state. Uh, thank you, David. And it was my privilege to serve. And at the time, I thought I was having fun. Uh, we worked the ERB sessions the exact same way we worked the remote viewing sessions. In the beginning, we used geographic coordinates. Uh, then we came upon coded coordinates using the, uh, the uh, random number. And then we went right to this. Uh, making coordinates and associating with the target. Uh, along the way, and I think it was Gene Lesson who came up with the idea, rather than going straight to the target from an ERB state, you, uh, you achieved uh, uh, sanctuary was the word. You, uh, we all had our own sanctuary, which we didn't tell anybody where it was, and you would go there psychically. Mine was in County Roscommon in Ireland, I eventually figured out. But you would go there and just relax. Uh, then you'd get the coordinate. In the beginning, it'd be geographic, but eventually it was just a string of numbers, uh, which actually blocked out a lot of the, uh, the analytic overlay that you might get if you were told something was six degrees north. But uh, then you did the target. Uh, we... At the end, when we concluded it, you returned to sanctuary and had what we called cool down. And then you came back to the room. And uh, 
that that's my recollection of it. I uh, uh, I enjoyed ERV more than CRV because uh, it seems to be more real. Uh, that's bad. It uh, it's more exciting, and I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Tom Paul. Did I miss something there? Well, the only thing I'd say is that um, to me, ERV was a waste of a good nap. <laughs> and I think that you probably liked it so much because it allowed you to lay down on the job. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Spoken like a true CRV. <laughs> and part two of David's question What was the most unusual ERV session that you were tasked? Oh, please. Uh, there were several that stand out. Uh, one, uh, they had me monitoring the, uh, the Kremlin one day a month. I wasn't supposed to know that, but the, uh, the Kremlin's a very unique shaped building. And eventually I, I, I figured out where I was going. And, uh, there was a, uh, a conference room, a briefing room, and I would go there and, uh, uh, had made several friends. One, uh, first name was Yuri. He was a three-star general. But uh, I got there one day, and I could not find the conference room. I think Gene Lesman was monitoring me at the time. And uh, so I was wandering around the Kremlin trying to find it. And one of the things I could do fairly well in ERB was, was come up to somebody and ask questions of their their psychic or whatever. So there was a kiosk there and I went up and I asked the first person, uh, where's this room where the conference is going on? He said, no, you're not allowed to go there. And I said, yes, I am. And I tried to manipulate him. And he was staunch, very firm that I was not allowed to go to that room. And uh, so I eventually let him up and there was somebody else over there having tea. And I went over and asked him and he said, I'll take you. So it was the, the, the variation, one person's psyche was very security conscious, the other was very helpful. But uh, some, of the, some of the stranger ones, yes, uh, uh, another long term, it was monitoring, uh, an incident had occurred in uh, Afghanistan, the Russians were there at the time. And uh, there was a dispute between DIA and CIA and the army and uh, uh, one of the uh, army premier collection agencies had got the information. And so the, the, the idea was for me to go back in the time it occurred in March of a certain year. And I would go through March each day, one at a time, uh, one day in the morning, one day in the afternoon and try to find this event. Uh, so th this went on for, I don't know, six, seven days. And finally I came upon the event and uh, described it, uh, went through the, uh, the, uh, everything going on and the event was being observed by several people. And one of them stood out because it was, he was different than all the rest. And I focused it on this person who was watching the event and uh, described him in detail and quite a bit of detail about him and uh, turned it in the, the agency came over and uh, was reviewing things and 
went through and the person I had identified and provided all the information on was the source of the information. It was their source. Uh, uh, and it gave them quite a, uh, a bit of a shock when I was able to identify the source of the information. If the Soviets were doing it, they could have done the same, obviously. So that's, there were several more, but I won't keep going. <laughs> Thank you. This next question is from Jim and Tori. There has always been gossip regarding Ingo training a secret second group of remote viewers. Have you heard this rumor and is there any validity to it? Uh, yes, I, I have heard the rumor. Uh, Engel trained a couple people in a very short period of time. As if a second group was trained, it's, I'm not aware of it. Paul or Tom may have more information on that, though. Um, I'll let Tom add anything here in a minute. But uh, actually, I've confirmed this. Ingo has mentioned it to me in private conversation, and Hal put off also a, 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 um, confirmed it. I asked him outright if this that had happened. He said yes. One thing Ingo said about it was that this is a group of people who he did train and will never, ever hear about them. I don't know what that means. I don't know if they're special ops guys, if there were some other really deep, dark organization within the Pentagon. The implication was that they were, however, government employees of some sort, whether military or otherwise. So, you know, I don't know what to say other than that. I have nothing to add. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. <laughs> okay. This, oh, I'm going to mispronounce this name. I'm not even going to try. The question <laughs> is, I'm interested to see if anyone does not use cool down. I saw recently that Dr. Paul H. Smith was stating that remote viewing is possible without it. Yes. I, uh, I think, are we talking cool down before or after a session? Before, uh, I used to go through a, a, a actually two different cool down uh, uh, procedures, depending if I was working ERB or CRB. Uh, Paul used to listen to some terrible hard rock music that, that uh, I can't imagine how that puts you into any kind of state other than nerves jangling. I'm not sure what Tom did, but, but uh, yeah, I think you can walk in, sit down and go ahead and do it, but why not take a couple minutes to prepare yourself? If nothing else, there's a psychological impact, I think, but yeah, cool down. It's psychologically, and I think also it helps. But if you don't want to do it, don't. And with that, I'll pass to the, the, the person with the terrible taste in music, Paul. Well, first I want to hear if Tom uh, employs it at all. I, I, uh, I don't recall what you did, Tom, back, you know, back in the 1980s when we were working together. Um, but I, I'm curious to know what you have to say about that. When I was training with Ingo, there, there was no cool down. I would walk in and we would walk in together and sit down in the, the room. 
And as he dug through the folders, deciding what the target was going to be that day, that was the extent of my cool down. Later on, I adopted about a 15 or a 20 second, not minute, but 15 or 20 second cool down where I would just sort of hang my head and wait for the images in my mind and the sensations in my body to go away. And I would say a little brief prayer, God, you created all things. Tell me about this thing I need to know about. And that was the extent of my cool down. And that would take maybe 15 seconds or so. Thank you, Tom. Uh, so let, let me just toss in. Uh, I actually wrote an article of this for, for my blog and at the risk of, of, of Bill attacking me for self-promotion. Um, you might want to check that out. It, it, the blog is called the Remote Viewing slash Remote Perception Blog. Um, and you can go there and you'll read my article about it, which I discussed the ins and outs of it, my experience with it, what I recommend, uh, and so on. And, and that uh, that may be helpful to you. But it's interesting, uh, Tom, I, I'm, I, I had never asked you about that, Tom, so I'm glad to hear your answer. And I can imagine in your setting you wouldn't have been able to do that. So when, when Bill and I were training, there were four of us. Um, and so you had to wait in between your turn to go in to do your session and so that gave you plenty of opportunity for cool down. Uh, during that period with Ingo, I, I didn't have a way to listen to music. So I would just kind of try and zone out or whatever. Um, later on, of course, we had the Hemisync uh, tapes that we were, the Skip Atwater interested to. So I, I, that's all in my, in my blog post. So I won't go into that. But it does seem to work. Um, it does seem to work without cool down. And I probably should... Uh, acknowledge something that Palin Gaynor said, or PJ. Some of you know who she is, some of you don't. She was kind of an early adopter in the remote viewing world. She built um, mine and Lynn's and Joe McMonigle's first ever websites, um, very much interested in remote viewing. And she got had an observation about uh, cool down in that in CRV, in controlled remote viewing, the process itself kind of works to cool you down in a way. You start off, uh, like I say, stone cold sober, right? Sitting at the table, fully awake, nothing. But by the time you get to the end of the session, you're in a in a what we would often call dingy, right? Dingy kind of a mental state because it really did sort of induce a mild altered state of consciousness. So it kind of was, um, um you know, self, self-inducing. And so you could get away without a cool down and, and you probably could in most cases anyway, but um, just, yeah, I thought you'd find that interesting. So. Yeah. Yep. I uh, like to point out that that dinghy state at the end was different than Paul's normal dinghy state. Uh, when the four of us were going together, Tom would go up one week and the four of us would go up the following week. And uh, I, uh, early on, I uh, learned to, uh, to volunteer to go first. Ingo would say who's first, and I would volunteer to go. That way he wouldn't be pissed off by, by Ed Dames or sometimes Paul. So I would get him fresh, and uh, sometimes I would piss him off. The other thing is, Tom, that's, you, know, you mentioned the prayer. Yeah, my cool down is for, for CRB, I would do one Hail Mary, and for ERB, I do three Hail Marys. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. And with that, back to you, Russell. I do have to admit that I have missed the uh, Paul and Bill show. <laughs> uh, training with you guys and hearing the stories back and forth is something I 
think about often. Okay, the next question Daz typed in, but I would like Daz to open his mic and let the question fly. Okay, bear with me a sec. I have to find it again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was about, uh, I'm, I'm investigating a, a project from Ingo's archives. It's called Project Moondrop. And I, I believe Paul worked on, on that and a Roswell project for Ingo as well. And I just wondered if, uh, if Bill or Tom also worked it and if any of you could shed some more light on it. Uh, I'll pass that on to Paul first. Well, there's also Tom. Um, I, I don't believe you worked it, did you, Bill? I don't think so. I um, like it, but the, uh, it doesn't strike a note. I think you were in Europe at the time. Uh, or, in, or no, you might have been actually, to, no, you would probably have been in Europe if you were anywhere. So, um, yeah, I worked the Roswell thing. <laughs> the unfortunate thing is I kept getting AOLs of Roswell. And, <laughs> and so you, you get that and you just start thinking, oh, crud, I'm totally off, you know. And, uh, but but, but I, I think, as I remember, I haven't reviewed these. That was like 20 years ago when I did that for Ingo. Um, my recollection is that I didn't really have anything substantive to report except to confirm that an event happened that did not match what the Air Force later claimed, right? So, so I think in a way it was a confirmation that Roswell was in fact a real thing uh, as generally it's come down to us in the folklore. Of course, the problem is that anything like that is going to get all kinds of noise attached to it, cultural noise from the UFO community and all that. So getting to the actual bottom of what happens has become quite difficult. But nonetheless, um, I did get um, some uh, some confirmation in that the moon drop thing. I, you know, I've I've just re recently, partly at Daz's urging, kind of started to go back and look at that. And um, I, there was actually two moon projects I worked on with Ingo. One was moon drop, and another one was something else. And I'm kind of confused between the two right now. But uh, if I'm thinking of the same project here, and I think I am. What was striking with that is that I was working blind. Ingo was working under whatever circumstances he was working on. There was a third viewer who was working under yet another circumstance. Ingo ultimately sent me his final report with, with the session transcripts and stuff from the other viewers, the, the three of us. And there was a striking amount of information that crosswalked, that, that each of us reported on from different, obviously from different perspectives, but nonetheless still there um, that, that corresponded with each of our inputs. And um, that was probably the one thing I was very skeptical about all these claims about the moon previous to that. Uh, and I'm still, you know, a little kind of holding this information at arm's length because it's possibly wrong in a remote viewing session. And there's a possibility of what we call telepathic overlay. And there's all kinds of possible bumps in the road in the way to, to accepting the information, information we provided. But, um, but, if this stuff didn't seem like telepathic overlay, I have to say, sometimes it's very obvious when that's the case. Other times, I don't know, there could be some reality to this. And that has changed my opinion about the state of the moon and what might be going on there. Not that I embrace all the wild stories that you hear about it, but I'm open to the possibility there's something really is going on on the moon. And before I would have rejected that out of hand. So, you know, sorry to take up so much bandwidth here, Bill, but uh, but that's, I guess, the best I can say about this project. Um, did you work that? No. Uh, to my knowledge, I never worked on Roswell. Um, but, you know, Paul mentioned that he knew something went on there. 
some of the reading I've been doing talks about islands of belief. If you have thousands or tens of thousands of people who believe that something happened there, sometimes that creates an event in, in the viewer's mind. They don't know a great deal about it, but they recognize that something's happening there or something occurred there. So, but no, to my knowledge, I never worked Roswell. Thank you. I, uh, I did work my European viewers and my wife, Sandy, on, on Roswell several times. Uh, once again, I, uh, I'm buying into what Tom said. It's something, something did happen there, but whether it was telepathic overlay or there's you know, a feeling throughout the world that, that they were accessing, it, it was uh, uh, nothing definitive, but very interesting. Back, back to you, Russell. Okay, uh, I'd also like to welcome another member of Daz's crypto viewing team. Dennis Nappy's just joined us. Hello, Dennis. Hey, Russell. How are you, buddy? Doing very well. We're doing uh, questions in chat. So if you want to throw anything in there for Bill, please do. Will do. Thank you, sir. Uh-huh. Andra, who we communicated with earlier, that is... Uh, needing to travel in her car, put forth a couple of questions. I'm going to pick one or two here. First of all, she said, thank you so much for this. What a special gift. My question, what are the best places, teachers and resources to learn RV? There are several credible teachers out there. I, uh, I hesitate to answer seeing uh, I work with Paul Smith. In fact, many people think I'm the better half of that team. But, uh, but that I'll pass. I, I, I don't want to. Uh... <laughs> okay. I understand the diplomacy there. I have heard that there are some differences in re results that may be gender-based. Is there any truth to this? It's interesting. I uh, I don't. There are differences based on personalities. I think. Uh, uh, let me give you an example. I worked uh, two women on uh, 25 June 1876 uh, in the Valley of the Little Bighorn. One was a German female, and the other was my wife Sandy, who's part native. Uh, the German female was was horrified and disgusted, and uh, I had to keep going from before before the battle to to the party after the battle, if you will. Didn't want to view it, and my wife Sandy had a wonderful time looking at it. So personalities affect viewers, I think, but I don't think it's uh, according to sex. I could be wrong. Anybody else, Paul or Tom, have any difference on that? So this question comes up a lot. There's this uh, presumption out there that uh, females have a, an easier time with anything psychic, right? And it's based on the idea they have a nurturing uh, nature to them and, and they're more in touch with their, with their inner processes and that kind of thing. My observation with students is that it's gender independent. It's personality, or as you said, or character dependent. I've had 
I've had women students who have no clue how to get in touch with their inner processes and male students who are really good at that. Uh, it doesn't seem to distribute well over gender. It's much more quality of your open ability to be open-minded about it, your ability to let go and let things happen, your ability to disengage from your intellectual processes. And, and that seems to be kind of independent of the gender thing. Now, there is an interesting suggestion about gender connection in ESP in general. Uh, this was brought out in, uh, in uh, some of the Paralab stuff, Brenda Dunn and, uh, and Dean John, where in their research, they seem to have an indicator that if both men and women were involved in an ESP experiment, the experiment was more successful. Uh, it worked even better if they were bonded couples. It did not work as well as, with same gender uh, connections in, in uh, the process of in the experimental process, it, just in terms of results. So um, that is, that, that's th been thinly researched, but it would really be interesting to pursue that to see if there is this, this mixed gender effect. Whenever we do a um, outbounder in the, uh, it, for the IRVA conferences, um, I always want the outbound team to have at least one male, one female in it, just in case that effect applies. And we don't have any hard and fast uh, data on it, but our outbounders there have been actually quite successful. We had some people who do really well on, on uh, describing the actual target that we go to. So, you know, I'm going to keep doing that in the future as we do outbounders uh, and I'm not going to mess with success, you know, change the, change the parameters if it's working. So, uh, you know, that's about all I can say about it. Back to you, Russell. This uh, final question from Andra. Does Major Ray take on students formally or informally? Uh, in, in the Netherlands, uh, it was informal. I, uh, well, we, I guess a combination. Uh, they would come over in the beginning. We would, uh, through early stage one, we would, uh, all gather around, work through the classes and then the, uh, the sites. Later on, as we advance in the stages, the, uh, the sites obviously became longer. And so we would, uh, uh, I'd split it up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, however. One thing I noticed that uh, uh, Ingo didn't have us do is that uh, I would have the, uh, uh, there six, seven people, the one working the site, uh, the others could be sitting there watching them work the site and learning from what they were doing. It didn't seem to have any effect on the ability of the people to work the site, having other people watch. I think once, once you get past stage one, uh, you're focusing on the site more than you're focusing on the environment that you're in. And uh, there's a as you move farther into the site, you get more, I'm not saying by locate, but your, your attention is focused on the site and you aren't seeing anybody or the people around you. And the fact that somebody's observing you do it doesn't seem to be a hindrance. That's been my experience. I don't think it's everybody's, but it's been my experience. Okay. And then, I'm sorry, we'll one second. In real quick. That's an interesting idea. I was just thinking about Maybe we ought to integrate that into our training, Bill. But um, 
the one downside I see is it may, people are very, develop a, a much higher state of anxiety as they're first starting if there's people watching them. Oh, no, 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 I'm going to mess up in front of all these people. You know, it makes them anxious. Um, so I've been reluctant to do anything like that, except on very rare occasions. Um, and I think you're right about as you get deeper into the session, then you start to forget about who's there. But I could see there being a problem with it actually making hard for someone to even get into that deeper state uh, if they had observers. So I don't know. We'll, we'll have to talk about this offline, Bill. It's kind of an interesting idea. Good. And I'll address uh, Andre's question in present time. Are you doing anything training formally or informally? Uh, not at the present. I, uh, I have a, uh, a granddaughter. In fact, I have a couple granddaughters who are interested in learning. And uh, I, I, I may start working with them along the way and maybe a couple other people in the area. It'll be informal. It'll just be, yeah, as we get time together to, uh, to basically work the sites and go through the steps. Okay. Uh, Andra, your question about uh, the difference between intelligence and counterintelligence was actually addressed in the chat uh, by Paul. Okay. All right, I'll read this one for Paul. Bill mentioned Gene Lessman. Gene, oh, I'm sorry, that was a continuation of your answer to Andra. Strike that. Well, it was actually it was actually just an answer for the group because I figured when Gene when he said Gene Lessman, people didn't know sure didn't know who he was referring to, so I just threw that in there, and probably to trick me as well. Thank you. <laughs> All right, we're going. This is from Jimmy. Do I understand correctly that you did not know what your ERV sanctuary was at first and then later identified it as a site in Ireland? Or did you know the site first and choose it as a sanctuary location? No, uh, I had no clue where, yeah. The, the, the process was to let your psyche go find a place where it felt safe. Uh, I uh, did that and eventually was uh, uh, able to get up high enough to identify it uh, as being in Ireland and eventually identified it as Roscommon. But for the majority of the time I worked there, I, I had no idea where it was. It was just someplace I went and I felt very safe there. Yeah. And I still go there, as a matter of fact, when I go to the dentist or uh, a couple times I've had surgery, I go to sanctuary. I'm, I'm out of there. My, uh, my body may be there. My teeth may be there, but my, uh, my psyche is someplace else. Great. Thank you. I uh, would like to just briefly put Joff on the spot. Oh. You made a comment here. And I'd like you to share anything that you felt about training with Bill and Paul. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, both of them, a big fan of uh, RVIS. And uh, I tell you, the greatest, uh, greatest bunch that you could train with as uh, well as you, Russell. Um, it's a lot of fun. I I've heard other teachers, Angela, and people describe this as the gold standard. 
And absolutely it is, you know, there's, there's so much that uh, happens away from the courses uh, that, that just make the experience magnificent. And uh, I, I had a professor in university that said his greatest joy is that it carries on after class and that uh, the discussions carry on and he feels that that's what, and that's certainly the case that uh, with Paul, with Bill, and uh, I've trained with Angela as well. Would love to train with Tom McNear and I can't wait till we have an excuse to get back there again. So I, I couldn't give it, uh, I couldn't give it enough accolades and I couldn't give uh, Bill enough accolades as well. Such a fantastic mentor. You have a question, um, they, they answer it. Uh, very generous with their time. And I'm probably one of the more, I probably am one of the more OCD students, maybe after you, Russell, that uh, they get texts and emails and uh, maybe smoke signals and, and that, and they're always happy to, uh, to help. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. yeah, you're awesome, Bill and, and <laughs> Paul. Right. Yeah. And uh, so. so I'm hoping that I can persuade Tom to come out and assist. I, I'm thinking about doing a class where I have Tom and Bill together um, as assistants. Awesome. And uh, I have to figure out how to do that. I, I generally not don't want to have a huge number of students. Otherwise, we lose the quality of the training. But uh, but I think we could manage that pretty well. So we'll see what happens. But uh, the one thing I was disappointed in uh, in uh, Joff is that you didn't mention the quality of our jokes and repartee when you were talking. <laughs> well, at least mine. <laughs> and, uh, and that's, not to, that's, not yeah, that's your the Irish best part. Singing. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I love Bill could break into a tune at any given time. And it's, it's oh, if oh, you listen tune. to the lyrics, it's often. Uh, a tune, well, is that what you call it? <laughs> Yeah, so no, it's it's uh, it's so much fun, and I I had an audit opportunity to audit one of the courses too, and and uh, a fantastic experience. Um, I think everybody there was a doctor, a medical researcher, and uh, clinical psychologist. It was just uh, it was phenomenal from that perspective. But yeah, the it, Paul, your 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 jokes are a little out of kilter, but uh, I could say that uh, while I'm up here. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I detect a little jealousy of Paul there of my singing ability. Yeah, well, no doubt. <laughs> I just like to say the the instructors get very close to the students. It's uh, well, five and a half days, but it's it's it, you know very intense. Uh, we're very close together. You get to know each other very well, and uh, uh, I've been impressed by the quality of students that that, that Paul's been able to uh, get to attend the course. Thank you. There's some way I can get out of this. Oops. Um, just a reminder, go ahead and mute your microphones, please. And I uh, will take advantage of this little moment to also say I would really love to see Tom come. Uh, Joff's already used his audit, so uh, sorry, Joff, but I'm going to invoke mine if Tom comes. Thank you. Aha, life is good. Okay, here we go. While we're waiting, I would like to take the opportunity with the, the people here to give some credit to, uh, to four people who I, I think are uh, key to the development of, of RB over the years. And uh, yeah, we all call Ingle the father of RB, but uh, 
Skip Atwater, uh, the operations officer. Basically, if Skip hadn't been at the place where he was at the time he was and was not the person he was, I don't believe the Army or DOD would have gotten involved in this. If the CIA had kept it, it never would have got out. A couple other people I would like to mention, Jack Verona, the uh, number one scientist for DIA, a huge supporter of the project. Uh, there was a, a, a friend of mine, a Lieutenant Colonel, Jason, uh, his name slips me, uh, who worked in AXI, who uh, basically would go up against Odom constantly when we were in there. Uh, General Odom was the, uh, the number one general in intelligence for the Army, not a great fan of, of remote viewing, but uh, Jerry Fox would go up against him constantly, and he worked for him. And the, uh, the fourth person was Marty Horwitz, who was the director of the GDIP, controlled all intelligence funds, uh, would constantly uh, uh, line up briefings for us to congressmen, senators, anybody that, that we could to, uh, to, to spread the word about RV. And those four people don't get the credit. I think they should along the way. Just so everybody knows that there were other people out there who uh, remain on sun for the large part, but uh, we had a huge effect on this being where it is now. Thank you. This next question is from Dick. Bill and Tom and Paul, do you currently work remote viewing targets? If so, where do you get the tasking? I don't right now. And I'll pass to Paul. Well, first, let's ask Tom. I've, oh, I've been talking too much. <laughs> I occasionally do remote viewing. I'm working with Marty Rosenblatt and the APPI group. Um, I was pretty active with them for a while. I'm sort of taking a break right now, but I get lots of emails and an occasional phone call of people asking. And if it seems interesting and if I don't have a lot going on, yes, I remote view. And that's where I get my taskings. Again, it's one-on-one -on -one people asking me. I can't believe Paul said he was talking too much. This is a first. <laughs> well, I, 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 I wanted Tom to have a chance. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I do a remote viewing session for each of my uh, remote viewing courses um, as a dem demonstration for my students once I've learned the principles so they can see what it looks like for an expert to do it. Ex expert being, you know, a loose term here. Um, as I point out to them, uh, you know, you can't guarantee that any given remote viewing session will turn out. Nobody is 100% on this. And so the goal is just to demonstrate the process. And if it turns out as a success, that's great. Um, I actually did post an example of one of these demo sessions on my uh, remote viewing and remote perception blog recently. So you can see how they turn out sometimes. Uh, and I do work for uh, uh, Alexis Champion through his uh, IRIS group uh, based out of Paris. Um, and I do other stuff as well, uh, some of which I can talk about, some of which I can't, none of which is all that exciting. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I still do it, uh, probably not to the extent that a lot of folks like 
like Dick or Daz are doing it uh, just because I have so many other balls in the air, but, uh, but yeah, that's the extent of, of what I'm doing. Okay. This is a follow-up response to something you said, Tom, is there a source uh, for somebody to try to find the more information on the islands of belief concept? No, I wish I did. I don't have a source for that. Um, during one of the APP webinars, um, we had an open block where we just, there were 80 or so online chatting. And that was a term that was used and I, I have sort of picked up on it. Um, I don't know, I haven't seen it in writing anywhere, but to me, it, it's a good descriptor of when you have enough people who believe something has occurred, that that in fact perhaps creates that event um, in the minds of the viewers. Okay. This next question is from Demi. In the unit, apart from the secret classified topics, were there heated discussions about the woo-woo sessions? Yes. <laughs> the, 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 what kind of sessions, Russell? Woo-woo. Woo-woo, okay. Uh, Hang on a little clarity here. Is she talking about in within the remote viewing program or is this within? No, within the program, back in the day. Uh, in, in addition to the, the secret classified topics, did you amongst yourselves have heated discussions on the woo-woo topics? Uh, such as the uh, underground UFO bases, et cetera, is that what we're... I'm, uh, I, I guess uh, Probably more in line with the, the types of practice targets, possibly UFO. She did not specify. I did not specify, but I, I was uh, thinking of aliens, of course, and uh, unusual events that occurred uh, that time, back in time. Uh, yeah. uh, let me say that uh, we did discuss those kind of things. Uh, there were several sites that uh, that uh, uh, stirred up interest, and I'd like to talk about one later, not right now. Uh, Ed Dames acted as a monitor. I I don't think we have, or very rarely used him as a viewer, but he acted as a monitor, and Ed was uh, interested in those kind of things, and would come up with, for one of a better word, esoteric targets. Now, there's an advantage to esoteric targets, I think, that obviously you can't get feedback on them uh, other than discussing if the answer is logical or not. But what it did is it tended to get the viewers to say whatever came into their mind, not to internally edit anything or audit anything, because with Ed, you didn't know where you were going to go. And when you came, you weren't we never spelled out, or we seldom spelled out if this was a practice target or this was an operational target. Sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't. So with Ed, if you know you got a nine foot tall creature with wings, you know, 
the uh, the natural tendency is I don't want to say that because it's wrong. But with Ed, you didn't know, so you just came out and said there's a nine foot entity here with wings. And uh, yeah, so uh, from that point of view, I I'm not sure I'm answering the question here. But if Tom or Paul have anything they want to add, I'd love to hear it. Well, I think the the overall answer to the question is no, we didn't. Um, and part of the reason is because of the need for viewer blinding. You didn't want the other viewers that you might work on a project to know what the project was because then they'd be ruined to work on it, right? And so very rarely did we ever discuss what we did. between. We were actually disciplined or disciplined. We were actually instructed not to talk between sessions about sessions we did. Even in an operational world, if we started talking about those sessions, then you could mess up the whole operation because then you'd contaminate the other viewers. So we rarely got into this. And I say rarely, occasionally we did. Um, we did have some conversation about the Pat Price projects um, that we had, the, uh, the uh, uh, JPL photos of Mars that you know were, were the source of the face on Mars and all that stuff discussion. We had some discussions about those. Uh, but by and large, we did not talk amongst ourselves about these projects as a kind of operational security kind of a, kind of a, a principle. For me, I, act, I left the program in 1985. That was before Ed Danes got involved. And so during my time there, we tried to be a more serious intelligence collection effort. Um, so those were the, the nature of our viewing targets. Um, and so for operational targets, of course, as, as Bill and Paul just said, you wouldn't talk amongst yourselves because you wouldn't want to contaminate that. We, after hours sitting around drinking a beer, we would talk about some of those more esoteric targets. Um, but during my time with the program, it was more focused on actual intelligence collection. And there was none of Ed Dames, I'll use the term woo-woo, target that time. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Thank Tom. You. The next question is from Glenn Wheaton. Aloha, Bill. Remote, Aloha. View remote viewing, science, or magic? Ah, you're going to make me choose here, Glenn. Uh, as I recall, probably the first two or three weeks with Ingo, we did theory and uh, remote viewing uh, came up as almost a pseudoscience. And that's my recollection that not be, may not be correct. Uh, I think that was necessary for Ed and, and, and maybe for Paul that this is, uh, this is how it works. This is why it works. And we did a whole history of, of, of Psychics going back uh, to the to the Middle Ages and moving through. Uh, being Irish, I was you know if you told me it, it works but it's magic, I was happy with that. I didn't you know I could have started viewing three weeks sooner if if, if you know that had been the case. But uh, yeah, there is a a certain amount of magic to it. Uh, science, uh, I think we I think you can come up up with a scientific theory for it. The uh, uh, the one problem being... Hey, the, Lynn, it's Richie, if you're there, quickly. Uh, the, uh, 
one of the problems being with science is predictability and remote viewing works. We all believe that in our hearts. We've all witnessed that, but it doesn't always work, unfortunately. And Tom, what do you think, science or magic? Well, I would have to say it's a little of both. I believe it's science. I believe it's, it's a gift God has given all of us. And we don't know how it works, but there are many things that we don't understand that we use day to day. You know, most people can't tell you how electricity works or how a, an i7 chip in their computer works, but they use it. And so um, it's science that designed that computer chip. I believe there's a science that backs up remote viewing. And I believe someday we may better understand how it works. But as Bill says, it's not important to know how it works, only that it does. So I'm going to quote Arthur C. Clarke. I'm sure you've heard this. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I would like to, I mentioned Jerry Fox, Lieutenant Colonel, earlier. And we were sitting around a table with General Odom up, up in the Pentagon. And we were briefing him and uh, General Odom. Lieutenant General, three stars, said that uh, we don't like to use any technology that we don't understand, that we can't. And Jerry Fox said, sir, they were using bows and arrows a long time before they ever, ever understood how, they, how it worked. And General Odom turned to him and said, Lieutenant Colonel Fox, the court, this is, that issue is not in question. And Jerry kept pushing it. And that's all I have. Okay, Glenn, since that was your question, is there anything you'd like to say or are you happy with the answer? Jeez. Uh, I'm a proponent on the magical side because I think it will be many, many years before science identifies all the pathways between here and there. Many years. Okay, thank you. Two magic, two science, it's a draw. The next, well, this is actually a comment from James Lipscomb. To everyone that has served in this thread, thank you so much for your service. I have so much respect for y'all. It's an honor to be here. So, and I see that Dick Algeyer. Thank you. Dick Algeyer contributed magic. Me too. I'll go ahead and read this one for Daz, unless you want to ask it. Um, whilst in session, have any of you seen, felt, any other remote viewers at the same target as you? And I presume that would include both ERV and CRV sessions. Ah, uh, well. <sighs> I haven't, though I've sensed a present presence. Uh, uh, I, uh, some people I've trained uh, working in the same target at the same time, uh, these are relatives of mine, uh, my daughter and my wife did encounter each other. Uh, I, uh, but I have never had, but they did. I, uh, I have not heard it happening with anybody else. 
though there's there's some stories out there about us linking up with uh, Russian remote viewers on some targets. Uh, I think that's more urban legend. But uh, I don't know if Tom or, or Paul have that same experience. In 1984, I was a member of Ingo's five-person team that remote viewed Mars. And while I was there, Ingo had us linked up, even though we were in different time zones, he had us remote viewing so that we were all there simultaneously. And I do believe I encountered the interest that was being expressed by the other viewers, um, encountered perhaps the other viewers. I felt energies um, there. That was the only time I've ever known that I was remote viewing simultaneously as someone else. But it certainly was confusing um, initially, I couldn't differentiate between energies that might be there on the planet Mars versus energies that were being projected to Mars by the other teammates that we had, that I had. So, yes, I believe I've encountered other remote viewers at the same time. Um, and I think you would have to run experiments, which would be very interesting to have teams go but don't let others know that that there are other people going simultaneously and see what sort of reporting they receive thank you Tom. i'm going to distinguish here make a distinction one is between encountering somebody at the target versus encountering another remote viewer at the target right so i myself never had the experience of encountering another remote viewer at the target and um the stories of people who have are very few and far between. This is uh, interesting. The Will says Sandy, and which one was it, uh, Kelly or Shannon, or which one? I think both. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, that's interesting. And of course, they're close relatives, but they also knew that they were both working it right. Yes. So that's always a problem that you may have an, an inbuilt uh, uh, assumption going on. Doesn't mean it's not happened, but also makes it muddies the water a little bit, so you don't know for sure. Um, there's also the case, uh, I have, uh, had to be reminded of it, uh, on a couple, maybe one, two, I'm not sure, very rare occasions encountered somebody else at the target that was aware of me or so, somebody or something. Right. Um, and again, I don't know about the ontology of it, how real it was. I just know that was my impression. And that's all you can say in a remote viewing session. You have the impression that you met somebody there. Um, the reason I even want to comment on this is because I'm a little bit worried that when this topic comes up, it's a very sexy topic and everybody wants to talk about it and they start going on and on about it. And it becomes all blown out of proportion to the, to the actual incidents of it happening, which is really very rare and not verifiable. So, uh, you know, there's so many important issues in remote viewing. I hate to see people get caught up in this. Every once in a while, you know, discussing it over, but when it becomes kind of like a fad or something, and then everybody wants to have that experience, and then you don't know if you're making it up for yourself or not. Um, it's just something to be cautious about. This, the, not cautious about the experience, because I don't think it's dangerous if it's real, uh, but cautious about getting carried away with it, because it's ju there's just not as much there there as a lot of people want to believe. So. Let lecture over for now. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, back to you, Russell. Okay. This question is from Andrew Hall. 
Has every has anyone ever tried to remote view the afterlife or the place our consciousness goes after the end of our physical life? I have never known that to be a target. Yep, it's I'm not sure that's that's doable. I recall somebody one time was was monitoring was remote viewing someone at the time of their death and the answer came back well he's took one step step to the left one step up and he's gone someplace i can't follow but i don't think anybody's been targeted and uh beyond the the pale not to my knowledge i'm not sure it's doable i Tom? I don't know of anything. I figure I'll be there soon enough. I'd like it to be a surprise when I get there. Okay. <laughs> well, one thing I'll add, if Daz wants to make a comment, Daz had been tasked on the, exactly. mo the moment of JFK's passing. Excuse me, will I mute somebody here? So let me weigh on real quick before we do that. Um, I just want to say, I think it's Joe McMoneagle who that story's about, Bill. And he essentially said uh, they were trying to get him to follow this guy to see where he went. And then he, the guy died, they found out, or knew, I'm not sure. He said, wherever he went, I can't go. You know, so, and there may well be people who are tasked on it, Bill, since. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if Ed Dames has tasked people on this. But, uh, but again, you can't count on the validity of that information. You just don't have any, well, any confirmation possible. Yeah. Okay, so Daz... Uh, was tasked on the moment of death of JFK and incidentally had some perceptions that appeared to occur after that event. It's actually how I became familiar with Daz originally, uh, seeing the video uh, they had put out about. Is, is there anything you would like to say about your perception of that, Daz? Um. Yeah, it was very. I mean, it was it was an accidental thing. It wasn't part of the uh, the the tasking. The tasking was, you know, the the assassination itself. Um, and I accidentally followed. Uh, you know, I, I I kind of saw or felt that someone was being killed in in session, and I decided to kind of go off target and uh, and report on that. And uh, it was cut from the original video, so me and Dick put our own video out about that because we felt it was important. Because um, I didn't have any preset beliefs really you know i was a bit skeptical on on the life after death situation so it was interesting for me to um kind of have these impressions of someone going through a panic state of you know dying and you feeling the pain and then instantly like a light switch that changing to just total calmness which which shocked me uh, at the time and and then the yeah, idea kind of have the impressions of uh, what were non non-physical uh, life forms or i don't even know if they had a shape uh, interacting with this person to i don't know ease ease what they were going through at that time uh, but yeah it was all it was all uh, not to what my belief system was at the time i think that actually changed my belief system to uh, something a bit more a bit more than that now thank you i think that you know one of the things we have in near-death experiences where people go through the uh, what Daz is uh, explaining there, like my wife Sandy had one of these where the pain goes away and there's things going on, people, music, lights, and come back to pain, you go back out again. 
So it's, it, it's, I'm not quite sure at what point death occurs. If it, you know, is the consciousness still aware of what's going on for a while? And is, is, is that what we're remote viewing? You know, the, the person may, the heart may have stopped. There may be no brain activity, but the consciousness may still be going on. And at, at that point, there may be freedom from pain and, and all that. Or it could be very religious, but yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's on the other side of the pale or this side. As you go through that, that, that all pass. Okay, thank you. This is another question from Daz. Does it appear that over time to present that teaching CRV is eliciting a faster learning response from students something in line with the hundredth monkey syndrome? Sheldrake. Yes. Uh, well, uh, Paul has certainly trained more students than I have, but the quality of the students that, uh, that I mentioned earlier and yourself, uh, Russell and, and Joff are, are, are both been amazing. I, uh, I would say that, the, that there has been an increase, but that's, you know, that's, that's really hard to, uh, you know, we didn't give a test after the, you know, after the first ones and we didn't, you know, give a test after the last ones, but yep. I would, I would think that we are making some progress. Paul, you, you've trained a lot. Are yeah. You and actually there was a period in my training when I did give a diagnostic remote viewing target to people before they'd had any training. And then their final session would be then the, the evaluation, right? I stopped doing that because I just didn't have time for it. I mean, my classes were already too long. Uh, and I didn't find much of an indicator. It wasn't particularly helpful in that perspective. Um, I haven't really seen a, a, a universal effect where, where people just learn it easier today than they did 25 years ago or even 30 back when we were teaching 40, we were teaching at Fort Meade. I think probably the reason for that is that there are different... Uh, levels of quality of the various uh, remote viewing methodologies. And I'm not going to go into which ones are which or anything, but you do have some that aren't as effective as others. And that's naturally the case. When you get into anything from learning to play a musical instrument to, to cooking to, I don't know, basketball, even whatever, um, there are lots of methodologies in a given skill set that, that people can choose one or another or another or another. And inevitably, some of them will be better than others. Some of them will be a lot better than others. Some of them will be a lot worse than others. Some will be equal. You have this wide variety. The problem is because you're learning these things in all kinds of different ways, this, trying to learn, achieve the same goal, but in all kinds of different ways, I think that might actually kind of disrupt this uh, morphic resonance effect to some degree. And so it might be in, actually be inhibitory uh, to have all these different approaches. Um, if they were all equally good, I think you might see that effect. Uh, even if they're all equally bad, I think you might see an effect, right? But because there's this just wide variety of quality between the different methodologies and, and, and schools and whatever, um, it, they tend to cancel each other out. At least that's, that's, that's what I would say. I, you know, I, I could be totally wrong, but that, that's what I would think about it. So. Back to you, Russell. Okay. This next question is from Dennis Nappy, the second. 
Any thoughts on how we can use remote viewing in our day-to-day -day lives without front-loading ourselves? Well, as I, as I said earlier, uh, it has increased my intuitiveness, which, you know, as an intelligence or counterintelligence officer, uh, I have found helpful over the, over the years. I, uh, it, it's amazing how I can work a crossword puzzle now. If I pick it up and go through it and put it down and come back, words that I don't know or don't usually use appear to me and I can put it down. So uh, those kind of things, it, 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 it makes you more intuitive. One of the things that, that I do before I train anybody is, is, is let them know that remote viewing changes you. It, it, uh, uh, for, for, for army personnel, if, uh, you know, if you've, uh, been to the dark side of the moon and, uh, been to historic events and have, uh, been in bio, you know, bio laboratories in Siberia, all of a sudden getting that vehicle mileage report in every month on time may not be, be so important to you anymore. Yeah. It's, uh, I think most of the most of the benefits are, are positive, but uh, yeah, there are some. There can be some negative drawbacks as far as working in the left brain world. I, I don't know if Paul and Tom, Tom, have you uh, would you have a different viewpoint? I think we all use it every day, and we're basically unaware of it. Um, I would recommend a good book to those of you who are interested in reading more about it. It's called um, Psychic Literacy by Ingo Swan. And he talks about your psychic alerting system. And that is, you get some sort of an indicator that something's going to occur. And most of the time, we just sort of ignore it. And he's encouraging us not to ignore it, but to look more into it. I mean, a good example was Marsha Adams, Dr. Marsha Adams' earthquake prediction. What she found out is that just like earthquakes affect animals, it also affects people. I was one of her respondents to a survey or an experiment she was doing for a U.S. geological survey. I find that earthquakes wake me up in the middle of the night. And so I had a 1-800 number that I would call, and I would tell her what time I woke up, how bad the sensations were, and then it always ended with a guess of where is the earthquake going to be. And when I finally stopped, I think I was about 19 for 19 in earthquake predictions. But the amazing thing, and she had a grant from the state of California for this, the amazing thing she found out if, if I phoned in and this person phoned in and this person phoned in, the earthquake was going to be in California. But if I phoned in and this one phoned in and this person didn't, then it was going to be in China. And she got very accurate by looking at who did and who did not phone in about an earthquake prediction. And so she had a, a grant from the state of California for several years. So that's an an example of we wake up in the middle of the night all the time. 
most of us just roll over and go back to sleep instead of asking, hmm, what may be disturbing my sleep? And the same thing happens during the day. You get this little sensation that something's up, but most of the time we just ignore it and move on. Um, But I'm saying don't move on. If you have that little psychic alerting system telling you something's up, pay attention to it and see where you can go from there. But a great book, Psychic Literacy by Ingo Swan, will walk you through how to make the best use of that alerting system. Thank you, Tom. So all I want to say, Bill, is about your crossword puzzle uh, thing. I just, you just given your advanced stage, you need to be very careful that we're not just talking about words that you forgot that you knew and don't ever remember having used. So I, I appreciate the thought, Paul. <laughs> this question is from Dick. And it's all for, for all three, Bill and his special guests. What is your opinion of ARV? And then in parentheses, he says, I think it degrades viewers. Uh, I'm, I'm at a, uh, I'm neutral on this. I, I realize the, uh, the success that uh, Hell and his group had in the, Funding the school with, uh, with, with silver futures, I yeah. In theory, it makes perfect sense that that you should be able to predict an event in the future by having two different targets. I uh, I I don't think I've seen that through to. Uh, any any proof on that? In, in fact, quite frequently we'll end up with 20 viewers and 15 say one thing and five say the other and the five will be correct and not the 15 doesn't doesn't make a a lot of sense but uh i know that there are there are people in fact there's a whole society out there involved in this so i'll pass it on to my two uh, other compatriots tom well as i said earlier i'm working with marty rosenblatt and the apti group and um, I worked with them for about a year, a year and a half. And some of the hit rates were pretty amazing in ARV. But what we do see is that typically the rates start off very high and trickle down. I know I for myself, um, I had a, a low 90 or high 80 percent hit rate for a period of time. And I was pretty happy with that. But then over time, it started trickling down just like everybody else. Um, And I know for myself, um, I think it just got mundane, routine. It was just, am I going to do this again, another remote viewing to, to predict the stock market? So I think I understand why my hit rate started going down. But um, yes, the APP has a hit rate above 50% and has years worth of data where the, the collective body is between the 50 and 55, 56% hit rate. So statistically, that is a successful hit rate. 
especially when you take it over a, a very long period of time with many, many viewers. But the, the interesting thing is most people start off very well in the 70 or above percent rate, but then trickle down to that 55-ish percent rate. So yes, I believe ARV works. Um, I noticed that he said he thinks it degrades viewers. One of the things I will say is when you remote view, you may go five, six, seven pages in order to really understand that site. Whereas with ARV, I found myself rarely going more than a half to three quarters of a page because I realized my task was to differentiate between two very different photo sites. So I would say, I would take the ideogram, maybe two ideograms and a list of stage twos, and I would say, oh, that should do it. That should differentiate between, you know, two very different photos. And so, yeah, I, I can see where it could interfere with one's ability to persist and go on to the higher stages. Um, usually, I went to stage three. I would do a few sketches, maybe, and a list of stage twos, and I would, I would call it a day. Um, because that, again, was enough to differentiate between two photo sites. So does it work? Yes. Does it get phenomenal results? Well, it does for a period of time. Can it interfere with long-term viewing? Perhaps. So um, this is a one of those blog articles I've started to write but haven't finished. <laughs> okay. Um, the answer to, to the question really depends on what kind of viewing you want to do. If all you care about is ARV, then um, generally speaking, you run into the same issues you do with any kind of remote viewing in terms of decline effect, which Tom's kind of alluded to here. Um, you just have to learn to deal with the displacement and that kind of thing. Um, and if all you want to do is, is uh, ARV, then you play around with it, you tweak the, the relevant uh, variables in your process and, and come to the, your best uh, optimum performance. But if you're talking about operational remote viewing, um, you run into issues with ARV because as Tom has also mentioned here, um, you get used to being lazy in ARV and you, you start doing just not, if, if, when I have my ARV classes, when I teach uh, one of my ARV classes, one of the first things I point out is uh, ARV is really a duet between the judge and the viewer. Um, the goal is for the two of them working together. And people like to say, oh, the viewers are really good. The judges are just as important, maybe more so than the viewing. Um, those two work together. And if the viewer successfully presents a session that allows the judge to discriminate between the correct and the incorrect target. That's all you need. And it can be a very low grade session. You get to the point where you just get lazy. And in fact, that laziness can be systemic at a point. I've seen good operational viewers kind of get ruined by doing exclusively ARV for too long a period of time. And it's really kind of hard to, to claw your way back into having the patience and the discipline to sit there and turn in a 30 minute or even some cases we did up to an hour or 90 minute sessions at Fort Meade. It's really hard to do that when you've been 
satisfied with just five to 10 minutes, you know? So yes, I think you have to be careful. If you, if all you want to do is ARV, great. If you want to be an operational viewer, I would tend to stay away from ARV, except maybe every once in a while. Okay, Dick, would you like to jump in and clarify any aspects of what? I can't hear you. There we go. There we go. I agree with all three of you. Um, I, I think a, a highly trained remote viewer is like a thoroughbred racehorse. And uh, not to criticize Marty Rosenblatt, but I think Marty Rosenblatt is trying to find a thoroughbred racehorse or as many as he can, put him in a stable and then use him to plow a field. If I can do an ARV session in five minutes, I could do an ARV session in 30 seconds. I can go like this and say it's a building. But if you somebody tasks me with a bottle of Coke on a in an ice bucket or an abstract sculpture sculpture or a, uh, an iceberg, um, I prefer doing targets where I'm going to give you the whole layout of the terrain, the structures of the people. What are, what are the people feeling? What's their intent? What's their motivation? So a session to me can run two hours, three hours, four hours. And I just get, and the thing that offends me most about ARV is most of the feedback I see is not done correctly. It, uh, wouldn't you agree that you should only show the viewer the target that was selected? I'm always getting ARV targets where I'm shown, oh, they're, here are both the targets, or here, here are all, it, it essentially becomes a pool target. So you morph them both. So I'm not a fan of ARV. I'll shut Not up. to go into it too much, but the, the independent analyst who analyzes the data and picks the photo site and then the re remote viewer only receiving feedback on the correct photo site um, is the preferred way to go. But in reality, what we see is people who look at both photo sites, me, for instance, when I look at both photo sites and decide for myself which I have hit, uh, it doesn't seem to change the actual hit rate that I have. I tried an independent analyst for a period of time, and I do self-analysis as well. And I haven't found a differential in my hit rate from doing that. Thank you, John. Russell. This is from the name I can't pronounce again, so I apologize to you. My wife asks the question, what type of extraterrestrials have you had contact with? I understand this is a loaded question. Okay. Uh. Thank you for joining us and sorry for the teaser. We do want you to come back and hear the reading of Bill's original session report from an alleged ET encounter during a remote viewing session. In part two, we will also be joined by Lynn Buchanan, placing four Stargate remote viewers in the same place at the same time, answering questions. Thank you, we'll see you then, bye. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com 
for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.